Welcome to Bread and Poppies, a show about why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. The shootings. The constant, constant shootings. Look, we know that something has to be done about this. But the problem is that there isn't a consensus on what to do, even on the left. And just like experts on drug policy, such as myself, who have solutions to the overdose crisis and are just ignored by politicians and the majority of the public, I suspect that there are people who have good answers to the problem of mass shootings who are just being ignored. Just like public health experts are ignored when it comes to COVID, and just like climate scientists are ignored when it comes to the climate crisis. And much like with these problems, I suspect, uh, you know, I say that to be modest, I know that the reason that these research and empathy-based solutions aren't being implemented is because it would require fundamental alterations to the capitalist system. And we can't have that. No, the only things that we could possibly realistically implement are solutions that don't actually alter anything about the status quo and that generate profit. How many more people are going to have to die before enough becomes enough? You know, recently drug legalization is starting to see some movement thanks to the efforts of activists. But it's also because capitalists are finding ways to profit off of this shift in public sentiment, which is causing all new problems. I am once again stuck on the unavoidable conclusion that capitalism is a death cult. The most urgent mission is still the same. We need to organize against capitalism and imperialism. We can't piecemeal reform our way out of a death cult. People need to understand how the profit motive is poison for our species. It's a virus that needs to be eradicated. It should be seen as abhorrent, as abominable. Seeking to hoard more resources than you need to live peacefully should be seen as the most violently unnatural and antisocial activity in existence. Allowing profiteering as an acceptable activity is how we get war and weapons manufacturers and prisons and homelessness and insulin vials that cost $600 each. When there's no social safety net because having one would mean that people can't be coerced into exploitation for profit, people live in constant fear. Fear of being homeless, fear of not having a roof over their heads, fear of starving. That fear keeps capitalism running because if you have to sell your labor in order to survive, then you're gonna do that. Even if the person you're selling your labor to is exploiting you and not paying you enough and not treating you well, You've got to do it because there's no social safety net. That's how capitalism works to keep people dependent on the system, to keep people dependent on their employers. And that fear of homelessness, of starvation, of abandonment, it drives people into isolation, into violence, to protect what little they have. It causes people to cling to ideology. It forces people to stay with abusive partners and family members. It becomes entangled with ideological traps and lies like masculinity and hierarchy, which foster rage in those who fail to achieve the comfort that they've been told those things offer. They've been lied to. The owner class of capitalists needs workers to fight each other. It needs us to stay focused on blaming ourselves for the violence rather than them. Capitalists also need to dehumanize large swaths of the population in order to justify their exploitation. You see this happen time and time again with people who use drugs, with black people and immigrants and most recently trans people. Racism and dehumanization are a tool. White supremacy is a weapon. 
But of course, racism has taken on a life all of its own. It has seeped through generations and become a serious ideological problem of its own. White people have become as reliant on the lies of white supremacy for a false sense of safety as men are on patriarchy. People see hierarchy and they've been raised to think, oh, I need to be on top of that hierarchy instead of hierarchy shouldn't exist. Hierarchy is the problem. So what is to be done? Well, personally, I am not going to let that fear, that deep, deep fear that capitalism instills in us to keep us subservient, turn me against my fellow workers, my siblings in the human race. I will not be giving into the temptation to just protect me and mine because that's not how safety actually works in a social species. We can only withdraw from society so much, and by doing that, we're abandoning the people who can't. So what I'm going to do is turn towards my comrades and keep building the networks that we need to to survive. I will learn how to grieve and to mourn. I will learn from those who have already lost so much and who still keep fighting. I will let this radicalize me further rather than lead me to despair. The anthropologist Lawrence Ralph talks about the concept of becoming aggrieved in the face of socially facilitated death. To not allow our grief, that feeling like you're being driven insane by the cold violence of the world as it's currently constructed, to be framed as unreasonable. Grief and rage are rational responses. Becoming aggrieved does not merely lament death, it affirms life. It becomes a productive force, a communal form of care with political potential. To that end, I will not just grieve the deaths of these children. I will become aggrieved. Today on Bread and Poppies, I speak with Scott Martin, aka Pinko Punko, on social media. He's an Ontario-based writer, video creator, and communist activist. He also knows a lot about guns. This is a follow-up to episode 10, where two of my colleagues tried to convince me that guns are good, actually. It's obviously more complex than that, of course. I do suggest you listen to it. It was actually a really interesting conversation. For this episode, Scott and I talked about what gun control looks like in Canada, where we don't have very many mass shootings. A little comparative ethnography, if you will. Enjoy, and as always, let me know on Twitter if there are topics you'd like to see me cover on the show. I know a lot of very smart people who know a lot of things, and I love talking to them about basically anything. Especially when we can just sit there and shit-talk capitalism for an hour and make all those connections that the media usually doesn't. If you like my work and want to support me so I can keep doing it, please become a patron at patreon.com slash hillaryagro, link in the episode description. Or you could buy some baby diapers, or toys for my kids, or iron pills for my anemia off of my Amazon list. Solidarity and thanks. Here's the interview. Hi, and welcome to Bread and Poppies. Today we have Scott Martin with us. Uh, I say us, it's just me. It's me and him. <laughs> Both of us. Uh, Scott Martin is a writer and communist activist from Ontario, Canada. And the reason that I have him on the show today, oh, he also runs the Pinko Punko TikTok and YouTube channels, mm-hmm. makes great uh you know, communist educational content, super suggest following, following him. That's how I discovered him on, on TikTok and we've become social media buddies. And um, the reason that we're doing this is that there was uh, some interest after the gun episode that I had with uh, Taylor and, and Dick talking about gun control and um, sort of the role of guns in leftist organizing. There was some interest in, in looking at that from the Canadian context. I'm Canadian, Scott's Canadian. So, and I know nothing about this stuff as I was 
clear about in the previous episode. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about the role of guns in leftist organizing uh, here in Canada, but also about um, and to keep this sort of you know to to a- appeal to. Um, the international proletariat that we want to cultivate with the audience here. We're going to talk about sort of what works about Canadian gun control because it's often pointed to as as a good example of gun control, maybe what doesn't work um, in, in Scott's opinion from a communist perspective. So thank you, Scott, for being here. No problem. Uh, always happy to talk about it. it. I wouldn't say I'm uh, necessarily an expert in the field, but it is a field of interest. I've uh, written on it uh, a couple of times. I did a policy brief in university for it. Um, so yeah, happy to talk about it. Um, I I do have a question. Just I know this, this is your podcast, so I'm starting off with a question for you. But like, tables have turned. <sighs> um, how did like your perspective change after the last episode? You know, you've had some time to ruminate on it. You said you were kind of anti-gun um, starting off. Uh, just wanted to know where you're at right now. Yeah, I think that my uh, effective sort of like that internal emotional response, um, because, you know, actually something that I, I don't talk about uh enough in my public facing work is the fact that my um, anthropological academic work really revolves around affect theory, which is, uh, you know, in, in, in this case, it's, it's kind of the idea that um, your reactions to things are not cognitive first, they are embodied first. So when you think about guns, your reaction is going to be based in a, in a body reaction to it, an effective reaction. Um, and you can obviously use uh, rationality and logic to sort of change what that reaction is but um my internal reaction at this point is still ew guns no (laughs) i don't like them they scare me i don't want them near me or my family or any of my loved ones um however there is also the real world case that you know we're facing a lot of uh what's the word um instability yeah yeah in 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 the world (laughs) And um, who knows if guns aren't going to be a part of my life in the future, whether I want them to or not. So I think what I really got out of that conversation was um, first an appreciation for the historical context and everything. I think that's really, really important because, um, you know, my own personal feelings about guns are, are irrelevant compared to the actual like real world experience and, and historical um you know, facts of like the way that guns have been involved in in communist and socialist uprisings and organizations throughout history. Um, but also just, I, I, I like the idea that uh, it's good to be knowledgeable about these things and know how these tools work, even if I'm not planning on ever using one myself. And I think that increasingly as I go forward in a, you know, trying to, as we all are, trying to find a way to re to to newly integrate this shitty world that we're facing in this this future that none of us really expected um doing things like being being prepared with information um in in ways that we never expected like i want to learn more about cultivating food and canning and you know like water actually i know a lot about water um water treatment and stuff but um and yeah using using actual tools and guns are it's their, their tools like any other. So yeah, I have a, I have a new appreciation for it being something that um, I would like to learn about in, in more in the future um, when I have the slightest speck of free time, <laughs> which I do not right now. 
All right. Well, you know, thank you for coming on to Bread and Poppies. Um, <laughs> no, but um, no, I think that's totally fair. And um, one thing that I think I, you know, first of all, before we start, um, I am a cishet white man living in Canada. I'm a settler. Um, yes. My apologies for so far having cishet white men be the only people that I've talked to about this subject. It's really just because I didn't intend to you know, I, I, I am still, uh, I'm, I'm currently like focusing on my research. So I haven't been able to like spend the time to like specifically seek out, um, the perspectives that I really need to, to round out this, this subject, but, um, Absolutely. Yes, we can and at I, least I, be aware of, of our, pr our perspective. Yeah. And I do want to acknowledge that because, uh, in Canada, especially, you know, um, you can talk about uh, gun laws, uh, until you're blue in the face, but you do need to acknowledge that, you know, indigenous people, first nations, Inuits and Métis have, um, rights that settlers don't and it's to do with their history and uh hunting and i don't want to speak too authoritatively on it because I'm, I'm not an expert um i'm a bit of a hermit which is a fault of my own like um i i would say it's kind of lonely on the the far left gun in canada because um i, I haven't found a lot of people but i did want to start with that um, so one thing I would say is that uh, a lot of people will point to Canada as, um, you know, they've they've sorted out their their gun legislation. They've got it right. It's kind of like if you're in America here, uh, well, Canada and Australia, they've done it. Why can't we? And I do appreciate that sentiment, but it it loses a lot in translation. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll just kind of give an overview of the gun laws we have. Mm -hmm. right now. Yes, please do. What what uh, What is the state of our gun laws? What does that look like? So there are three classes of guns you can purchase legally uh, and purchase is kind of not exactly accurate because the first one is prohibited. That would be, you know, we had an assault rifle ban in 2020 uh, implemented by the government and that includes any assault styled weapons is how they classify it. And I'll get back into that later, but that's the first type. Uh, the second type is restricted and this uh, applies to handguns. So you can get a handgun legally in Canada, uh, but you need to take two safety courses, uh, one for non-restricted and restricted, and then you need to be a part of a gun club before you can even purchase your first handgun. Um, and then when you purchase your first handgun, you have to keep documentation with it everywhere you go. And you have to keep people appraised. Uh, you have to like file exactly when you're moving, what address you're at. It's very, very tightly regulated like that. Um, the third is non-restricted, and this usually encompasses rifles and shotguns. Uh, and these are usually used for hunting. So you do need to choose, take a safety course um to get that but beyond that once you buy the guns uh you could buy a rifle and as long as you keep it locked securely um following the laws you don't need anything else for it, with it um so that's kind of like the overlay of the land um and i do actually respect how much they go into um getting one uh for example i've never fired a gun in my life uh and that's not necessarily something that i what uh but i was raised in like the suburbs my parents hated going outdoors i didn't have a lot of friends who were hunters um so i didn't really guns weren't a part of my life until like the past five years uh so i took uh the safety course um for the license which is called pal uh that was in december 2020. i have submitted my application in june 2021 I have missed something on it, so they need to send it back to me, and I have no idea when it's even coming back to me. Uh, it's been almost a year, wow. and they haven't even sent it back so I can fix the things so I can apply it again and then get the license. So if I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, so obviously you need the license to to own a gun, but what about, you know, it, 
how you can legally drive a car with with when you're first getting your license you can drive only with somebody else in the same car like could you go to a, a gun range and use a gun right now or uh you could uh you would have to do a couple things with that so you would have to be with somebody who's a member of the gun club um and you would have to be under their the words are direct supervision so unless the person who owns the gun and the license is right beside you um you would be breaking the law so even if they hand you right. the gun and then you fire like a couple rifle shots and then they say hey i'm gonna hit the bathroom real quick if they leave you could be charged oh wow um, so it's very strict like that um and you know this all sounds really good i'm actually for most of this i think a little bit of streamlining would be better um <laughs> i do i'm okay with the delay there but when it gets kind of down to the nitty-gritties like i mentioned earlier prohibited guns uh, assault rifles there's no legal definition for assault rifles in uh canada so when they say assault styled weapons uh actually at least i had a note because it was so specific i just wanted to make sure um it is quote though uh assault style firearms are generally those considered semi-automatic with a magazine that is constructed to fire quickly um so that makes sense but when they banned it canada already had magazine limits before the ban so when you ban assault styled weapons and you don't have a legal definition you're just banning semi-automatic weapons and you know, I can't speak authoritatively on this, but those are incredibly difficult to come by in Canada anyway. Mm. And that's kind of usually when I approach the gun control issue in Canada, it's more from a you're not asking the right questions. Um, and when that comes down to is like, sure, ban all the assault rifles. But, you know, the reason they did it was the uh, the Nova Scotia shootings in 2020. That was kind of what spurred it. Um, mm most of his weapons were smuggled in from the usa um he had been reported multiple times for domestic abuse um it's very very murky about there's some evidence to suggest he may have been involved with the rcmp i can't speak authoritatively on that but uh so it's it's like you know we've got this horrible like tragic situation that could have been prevented and it's kind of the same thing like i i think this is very akin to, to drugs because you can draw the line it's like okay well drugs are destroying our community well why are they destroying the community is it just because everybody decided to snort a line one day not really there's other factors and i mean I, I i i take issue with the idea that drugs destroy communities in the first place well, um, and because I would agree. you know they're just when they're being used in the context of poverty it's just like saying like ah like people using antidepressants are destroying our communities well no i mean they're they're just trying to self-medicate from capitalism uh but drugs are like you know i i think i do i think it's interesting to look at guns as sort of like morally neutral the way that i try to look at at uh, drugs as morally neutral and the way that you know um food and fat activists try to try to uh, argue for food being morally neutral you know is it is it junk food that's the problem or is it you know access and like all these other things but guns are designed Oh, absolutely. Yeah, guns, I, I can't, you know, a gun and a drug are not a one to one like, thing. Yes, you, I'm not I'm not saying that the yeah. analogy doesn't even work. I just like I that's the part that it's hard to to wrap my head around is mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I want to I want to say we could live without guns, but um, that also, you know, like you like you made a nod to like the indigenous context in, in Canada, especially 
I'm not going to tell like an indigenous person that they should live without guns. Like they're just like tools that have been used for like actual hunting and, and like defense from wild animals for many years. So. Well, and I think um, a huge kind of like disconnect is um, with guns. um, It's, it's, it's very frustrating because every time you say something about like gun control uh, from a leftist perspective, you have to say blank, but I'm not a conservative. So like a couple of things that conservatives love to say, most gun owners uh, operate them legally, have never done anything like they've never gone on a shooting spree, which is correct. But um, most guns are smuggled in from the USA. So we need to focus on smuggling, which yes, but um, so with that, we're kind of seeing that right now. Um, in the Ontario election, which um, <laughs> I've been not paying attention to it right now, just because it's so so all over the place. But um, the please do leader... vote, please <laughs> please vote, friends. I don't know if this episode is even going to come out before the election, but um, I am a communist yes. who believes you should vote because it's the easiest thing you can do to like potentially improve the lives of yourself and your neighbors. Absolutely, which is and the whole point I, of what we're trying to do. So I agree. I think, and you probably agree with this. You know, voting is the least you can do. You should do more if you can. Um, yeah. But yeah, so with uh, the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, he announced a proud um, like policy that they're pushing for. We're going to ban handguns. We're going to ban the sale, possession of handguns, and we're going to do a buyback system. Um, and then Ford responded, uh, the problem isn't legal sale of handguns, it's smuggling. So what we need to do is give more money to the cops, more money to anti-gang units, and then they're going to solve the problem. Who is even, I have, like, nobody gives a shit about gun issues in Ontario right now. We're exactly. all dying because of rent costs. It's housing. Housing is the only thing that matters right now. If you're going to do anything, like, no, I've not heard a single person in my entire life, it's online or offline sphere, say that they give a shit about guns right now. Like... And that's it's the thing. That food costs is, and housing costs. Oh my God. It's easy to start off as like, as a leftist who focuses on gun issues, that was my first thought too. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, <sighs> I am interested in guns and they're the furthest thing from my mind in this. Uh, and I did comment on it from a, a gun perspective because I felt like I didn't have anything else to contribute. But what this does is essentially, if you are interested in guns, it makes it a, a dichotomy. You either want to ban handguns or you want to fund the police. Right. And uh, most Canadians are for the assault rifle ban. Two out of three Canadians are for a blanket handgun ban. Um, so this is an easy position to take. It's not a lot of nuance. Like I want less people to die with guns and we're going to ban them. And, you know, like I understand where that's coming from. Um, and actually, I, I guess I'll just do this now. Um, banning handguns is not going to solve the smuggling problem which uh 85% of guns seized by the cops in Toronto I believe in 2021 were smuggled and the other 15% were sold legally and then sold on the black market which you can you can fix that by just having regular checkups so whatever there um and then the other How many aspect of them are there even out there because I, I do want to i want to i want to put a plug for uh for people who are on twitter to try to find the toronto police uh, to the toronto police postings about the guns that they seize because it's become like a joke that they regularly post photos of like guns that yeah. look like my great grandfather <laughs> would make like a wooden, wooden gun with like a metal barrel and be like yeah saved it's everybody. like <laughs> it looks like they were like dug up in an archaeological wreck under the ocean like these guns oh. are like so shoddy and they're bragging about 
about then, confiscating them. And that's the thing too, is like, you know, you always have to take gun uh, police statements with a grain of salt, but that's kind of like the only metric we have for this. Um, uh, but yeah, so with handgun bans, the other issue is, um, suicide and this is mm. a very heavy topic and, you know, it's one where I completely understand it. There are, it's like an academic consensus at this point that if you have a gun in the home, you're more likely to use it. Yeah. Um, which I'm all for that. Like we should reduce that as much as possible. And this applies to every context, um, especially like a civilian population who's not, who doesn't need it. Um, I would say, yeah, that's that's totally fair. Uh, it's not nearly as settled as people think it is. I just did a gun, on gun policy brief on it that studied Canada specifically. I think it was four years before the gun control legislation in 1991 and then five years after it. Uh, okay, I'm not sure on the dates, but it's, it's like a span of time. And they found that uh, suicides by guns decreased, but the total amount of suicides stayed the same. Oh, so, interesting. yeah, it is interesting. And it, it's if you're looking at this from a Marxist perspective, it makes sense um, because the immediate thing of not wanting a gun for suicide is, you know, it's final. If you get like if you do it, there's no coming back from it. If you try to overdose with pills, there's a chance, you know, you can mm -hmm. be safe. But the reasons people want to do it sometimes are poverty related, housing related. They're all stemming from capitalism. So I'm all for reducing gun suicides but if the conversation ends there you're not really reducing suicides you're just saying yeah. i i believe guns should be banned because it does this and then oh we're done awesome yeah we're um, not gonna we're not gonna do anything to like prevent the mental health crises that lead to suicide we're just gonna make sure that people are like miserable still working but still alive but still miserable and working of course yeah, yeah you know like uh we've saved you from yourself with this gun now you're fired and we've also evicted you so yeah deal and with this, that. you know this this actually is um it it does relate to uh to things like drug treatment you know, uh, liberal politicians are often pushing like, we OK, fine, like we, we will try to, you know, we, we're leaning away from criminalization as a response to drug use. But we want people to have access to treatment, you know, treatment, treatment like this is the big thing. We want to get people off drugs. We want to get people to like kick their addictions. And it's like what how it's how effective is that going to be um, if the the crappy life that the person is using drugs to escape from in the first place stays the same like people do, like yep. why you're gonna you're gonna quit your drugs um and then and then do what go go back to being homeless like <laughs> there's a reason that that people use drugs in the first place um obviously it's complex and most people <laughs> use drugs because they're fun and it's you know whatever we all we all use drugs but people who are using drugs in a context of like it's problematic for them and they don't really want to be using those drugs and they're addicted um are usually using because like shitty life that they're trying to escape and so the only way to actually reduce rates of addiction is to create you know a better society well and i actually that's like you touched on something that I kind of hoping hoping you were because um one way that we can combat you know needless overdose deaths and needless gun deaths is quite honestly legalizing drugs because you've written on it before actually i think that's the first time i read that article and then later saw one of your tweets and went wait a second um yeah, i but, do i never shut up about it 
Um, but yeah, so a lot of people say, well, you know, you decriminalize drugs and um, that will, you know, make it safe for users and then we can still target dealers and everything like that. But if you want to reduce gun deaths, then you need to reduce um, gang activity for cartels. And to do that, you, you legalize drugs because that would wow. t- that would um, make yeah. it a safe supply. It would regulate it. It would put it in the hands of, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that the state doesn't do violence, but, you know, on a state that is uh, less uncontrolled in its violence, I guess I'll say. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you take the window to the sales because a lot of reasons people go sell drugs and get into that dangerous is because of capitalism. So if you if if you're going to do that and you need a gun to protect yourself or, you know, you need a gun because whatever circumstances in that say you need to go and get this person because they're they're moving in on our turf if you remove everything behind that not only are you going to you know drop overdose rates and you know make th- a safe supply you're also going to reduce gun deaths because yeah that's what I everyone wants to talk about can't believe i didn't make this connection before um but it, yeah it's it's extremely true i mean the 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 analogy i always i always use is like you don't you don't see beer companies like shooting each other in the streets. Like you don't see yeah. weed stores, you know, in Canada we have legalized weed and you don't see weed stores like, like settling their disputes um, on the streets because they don't have to, because they have access to like the legal system as shitty exactly. as our legal system is. At least people mm-hmm. aren't like, you know um, it's, it's, it's slightly less violent than just direct violence. Um, but, uh, and obviously this is, you know, I get, I get, uh i get from from the left uh arguments against it because we don't want like corporations being in charge of of selling drugs but like it's corporations are in charge of selling drugs right now um they're just called cartels like cartels are just corporations that don't have access to like the legal system which means that they're actually more exploitative than a lot of corporations are because like here if you work in canada for walmart like you at least have to be paid minimum wage it's a terrible job and terrible conditions but there are at least some minimal protections if you work um selling drugs you don't have to get paid anything you have no legal protections if you're uh if you get robbed or anything you can't go to the cops like there's there's nothing in place to protect you so obviously Uh like these hierarchical systems of drug sales um are are just going to be the same as any other company except more violent so um yeah let's score one more for for drug legalization uh removing harms Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of in that vein of like, it, like a lot of people who aren't pro-gun can get behind that if you you show them the evidence. Like like you said, you weren't pro-gun when you started and that's kind of been like your focus of work. And I think another thing that kind of applies to um, guns everywhere uh, is, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we need to ban assault rifles. We need to ban handguns. We need to stronger protections and all that. Uh, what about the police? Why are the police so, like not even not scrutinized, not even in the conversation mm-hmm. like Canada, especially, I mean, and the U.S. especially. But like this past couple of years in Canada, we've seen, you know, multiple people be multiple people been shot by police during mental health wellness checks. And there's a heartbreaking story. Um I think it was a couple of years now, but it was basically around my hometown where the OPP was chasing someone who had abducted their son and the OPP shot and killed like an 18 month old baby. Oh yeah. Which is 
horrific. And uh, I, maybe I should have put a content warning right before that. Yeah, but, I probably should have. I, 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 uh, I can't. I can't even talk about that story. It was too upsetting to me and like killed me for about two days. So that's uh, yeah, that's completely yeah. fair. Uh, but I'll just move on from that. It is a thing but, that happened. I'll just like um, remove. I'll remove my headphone and just let you tell everybody about it. <laughs> Uh, oh, I won't no, go but it's true. It did. It did happen. Yeah, it did happen. And uh, uh, Ontario has this organization called the Special Investigations Unit, which is a civilian oversight uh, board for police misconduct. Um, it's a joke, honestly. I feel like I could say that pretty confidently. Um, and the problem with it is that uh, officers are not required to do interviews. They're not required to hand over notes. They're not required to. Um, basically cooperate so most of the time when SIU releases their findings it's like there's no no misconduct um they haven't done that in that case specifically um I believe it's still ongoing which it's like over a year and a half old I think at this point maybe just under a year and a half um but when we talk about gun control and gun bans uh, the police should be front and center in this discussion there's no universe where we could completely quote unquote solve the gun violence problem among civilians and there would still be needless shooting deaths by police so it, it's true I think you know that's- uh in um robin maynard's book which uh any canadian who is listening to this I, I, there's very few things that I think are actually like required reading. And I really think that Robin Maynard's book, um, Policing Black Lives, uh, about police in Canada is, is really, really essential. And she points out in that book that, um, that because the police are the, um, like they, we have given them the power of state violence and they are, they are the ones that we have just decided have, uh, have a legal and moral right to do violence. We just we just forget about that. Like you said, like like we just we talk about disarming, you know, and 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 controlling guns for for everybody. But there's not that conversation about the cops because they they're just seen as this fixed entity that um, deserves to be to have a monopoly on violence, and we just uncritically like. Um, yeah, maintain that status quo. We don't even question it. So yeah, we don't even interrogate it on like a large scale. And um, I'll have to ask for that recommendation, and maybe a yeah. little later because it sounds like something I need to read. Um, yeah, it's great. Well, it's it's a it's a difficult read, but it's an important read. Yeah. Um, I actually I think that's a a good segue into um, marginalized people and firearm rights in maybe Canada specifically, but also like the world outside the USA because. The USA with the Second Amendment, you know, it's it's kind of horrible what the right has done with it. But I obviously in the past like four or five years, I've noticed there's kind of like this realization on the broader left being like, well, it applies to us too, doesn't it? And you know, you uh, you and the the guys went into it in the last episode, so I won't retread too much old ground. Um, but in Canada, that's not even remotely the case. And if you're listening to this and you're not in the USA or Canada, just look up the gun laws where you are, because, you know, obviously I don't know it, but uh, for Canada, let's say, you know, we had that, uh, that fascist convoy come through and I don't care if someone listening thinks that's strong language, whatever. Um, And in that scenario, if that happened in America, you would expect to see a lot of open carry guns. Uh, You would expect to see uh, counter protesters, maybe open, open carrying. Um, in Canada, 
if you're in Ottawa and that happens and you're on the left and you have a PAL and you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to go out there and not do anything, but go out there and like, it's a PAL. Oh, sorry. I guess like, I thought I said that earlier. PAL is a possession and acquisition license. That's like the firearm license in okay. Canada. Um, if you, if you just want to go out and be like, okay, I'm going to defend my community just by standing and doing patrols and not, nothing violent. Uh, the cops will arrest you basically on site. There's no open carry in Canada. Um, I don't know if they would arrest uh, far right people on site, but it would be an absolute shitstorm if they didn't do it in, like soon. I think that's one thing that you can't really cross in Canada. And when I took the safety course, um, obviously I didn't walk in and yell, I'm a communist, I'm in here, get out of my way. Um, but like you could tell the vibe in the room was right wing, which is, you know, you're going to get that. And one guy in there, oh, sorry, what? I said interesting. Oh, sorry. I thought you said sorry. Um, yeah. So I went in there and one guy said, uh, what if someone breaks into my house? And you could hear the instructor because he has to have this conversation every class. Um, in Canada, if someone breaks into your house and you have a gun and they're stealing your stuff or whatever, um, if you don't do everything in your power to make sure everyone in your house is safe and stay away and call the cops, uh, you're going to go to prison for manslaughter basically you have to do the most you can to keep everybody safe unless they're coming after you in which case even then you have to prove that you could only use the gun and nothing else um and i think that's kind of wild to a lot of americans because they have yeah. you know castle law and all that um but canada's gun culture is so completely different um if you try to do that you're going to jail there's i i can't i'm not a lawyer but i can't imagine a scenario in which you're going to get away with that um, so it, it's really difficult in Canada because we don't have a left gun culture that can grow in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways that's very good because I, you know, we don't, we do have NRA type of sort of associations up here, which are not great, but you know, if they advocated open carry, like they would just be inviting like the, the government to crack down on them. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, we have to be very careful how we do it. Um, and also I would say, you have to be careful with being monitored. The RCMP handles everything. They know your address. They know how many guns you have. They know where you are at all times. Um, and if you're okay with that, do it. Um, I am taking the process right now, but I'm also in a privileged position where I am a cishet white man. And you know, if anything happens where like they need to come to my place of residence, they're probably not going to do violence on me. Um, so I think that applies to everywhere outside of America. Um, although yeah, it's kind of hard. I would say if you are looking to get into guns, first and foremost is safety and history. And that I think is enough for most people. I think, you know, if we were to try and kind of do what Americans are doing, it would invite a lot of problems that I don't necessarily think are problems we need to be inviting right now. Not to say it won't happen, um, mm -hmm. but you know, like we talked earlier, but like, why are you talking about buying handguns? Like there's housing, there's, there's drugs, um, that like legalizing drugs that we need to handle. Like, I think it is definitely far, far back a priority. Um, but it's definitely one to keep in mind, um, and kind of extrapolating this to the wider, you know, leftist movement. I know the guys, um, talked about like Ronald Reagan doing gun control against black Panthers, which right. 
Of course. Um, but if anyone has the chance to, we're just going to be recommending books all the rest of the podcast, but uh, <laughs> Vincent Bevan's uh, The Jakarta Method. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, my God. That's been top of my book list for a long time. It's it's another, it's a harrowing read. He yeah. does his best to not like go into too many details and still it's harrowing. But near the end, after the book is about um, the CIA orchestrating coups in Brazil, it, helping to orchestrate coups in Brazil and uh, Jakarta. And the author interviews leftists beforehand um, and talks about how, like, you know, they were staunchly anti-violence. They were staunchly against, like, arming themselves. And then he talks to them after, like, these decades of military dictatorships. And he says, who do you think was right? And you can almost hear the heartbreak where they say, I still believe in nonviolence. I still believe we shouldn't. But objectively, we were defeated. Mm. And I'm not saying that Canada is even remotely in that same spot right now. You know, we're in the Imperial Corps. We're kind of like aligned with the U.S. already. But yeah, really three mining bring- companies in a trench coat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it really brings it into perspective. Exactly. Like you, when you talk about guns or when you talk about pretty much anything from a, a Marxist perspective, you have to take in the global situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. situation, unfortunately, they're at the top of the hegemony right now. Um, and your own countries. and it's, I, I think that's why a lot of leftists in Canada haven't really considered it mm. is because we have so much else to worry about. I kind of got hopeful. I think it was like a year ago, like February, 2021. Uh, there was a Twitter account, the Canadian SRA, uh, Socialist Rifle Association. They're like, we've registered as a nonprofit. And then they got thousands of followers and they haven't tweeted since. And I've been watching it like a hawk. I feel like I'm the only person watching it. And I don't know where they are, but interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think just broad strokes, it's, it's a difficult situation and I could go on forever about, uh, Canada gun control. I have a couple of videos on my channel about uh, the history of it. Another one coming out this summer. Woo. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting and I love talking about it. So when I saw the first one up, I was of your, your episode, I was like, Oh yeah. And then I saw some people wanted another one and I was like, raccoon paws like hey (laughs) yeah um well i I think i think that the the we should um i'm 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 aiming to we we talked about this beforehand i'm trying to make my uh interviews not an hour and a half every time um to keep the podcast a little more digestible for people but um so we should wrap it up uh fairly soon but i think the, the the main thing that we're sort of trying to do with with having these conversations is just getting people to you know, um, think about these tools uh, in a more complex way than just like bad or good. Obviously, I uh, framed the previous episode as guns. Are they bad or are they good? Which is also, I have, and I know that you will um, understand this as well as a person who, uh, you know, produces social media content. I have like this really contentious relationship to um, black and white thinking and these like sort of dichotomies and these, these catchy ways of getting engagement because the fact that I framed it as guns, are they good or are they bad? Got like views and engagement for the, the clips and stuff that I, that I put on Twitter and TikTok, um, which, which made people listen to the podcast, but that's kind of the opposite of what we actually want, how we actually want people to be thinking about these things. It's okay to not like guns. I don't like them either, but, um, 
just because you don't like them doesn't mean that they don't uh, play a role um, in, you know, and, and can play different roles in, in different places and different forms of organizing. Um, and it doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't become knowledgeable about them. And I think that, you know, um, speaking about, you know, Taylor, who's in Arizona and he's an anti-fascist in Arizona, like, yeah, if you are an anti-fascist in Arizona, you should, seems like the evidence points to the fact that you should probably get armed. Oh, if you're yeah, an anti-fascist in Toronto, maybe not your highest priority. So it doesn't have to be, um, you know, there, there doesn't have to be like one answer uh, to all of these questions because it, it really depends a lot on your location, what you're trying to do. And even if you are in Arizona and you do anti-fascist organizing, it doesn't mean that you have to get get armed. But, um, you know, it's just something to, to consider in terms of like how we want to most effectively use uh, our energies, both personally and collectively for this kind of organizing. Yeah, and I think that it is something that we should be talking about a lot more now because we we talked earlier about how the convoy is um, was a huge thing. Like, like no no words of no words to mince about it. The far right is or is mobilizing in Canada. Uh, they did seize a stash of weapons at the I think it was the Coots um, convoy protest, um, and it's just that we need to approach it in a way that is. Um, First of all, safe, because if you think that you should just go out and get a gun to protect yourself, um, then you're probably going to be more of a danger to yourself than anyone else. Safe is the first thing. Um, Understanding is the other, because um, I'm not saying don't get a gun, but I'm saying you need to understand the process to do it. It's very expensive. By the time I actually get my first one, I'll probably be in the hole for $3,000 approximately. Um, And if the left in Canada is the one are the ones to lead the charge on guns we're gonna get way more shit than anybody else who tries to lead guns it's just a reality i'm not saying it's not worth it at a certain point but there are other things right now um so i think you know if you think it's going to be like firefights in portland up here anytime soon uh the cops are probably more of a danger than far-right protesters currently um could change just the next couple of weeks before this comes out. I know they're kind of rolling into Ottawa this weekend. Um, but yeah, I think I, I it's, it's kind of a hard conversation to have because there's so many caveats uh, you have to put out. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of destroys like the, like, you could, you could uh, title this one guns. Are they better or are they worse? Um, but like, it's just, it's so difficult because especially so much of our conversation is dominated by America too. Mm-hmm. Um if I had well, one that's recommend- the thing. Like, there's a lot of like sort of cultural bleed over, um, and I, you know, I when we talk about Canada, uh, America's influence on Canada, it's important to not like once again, it's all about like subtlety and nuance and complexity because it's important to not um, portray things as like we just blindly follow what the U.S. does um, or that they're they're culturally dominant here because homegrown fascism canadian fascism it's it's its own unique thing and it's not it's influenced by the us but it's not rooted in in that influence it's rooted in settler colonialism um but uh that being said um there is a weird bleed over culturally especially like in the like post you know in the in this sort of era of social media where you see Canadians wearing Trump hats and, you know, like, like MAGA hats and, um, and 
watching American conservative media and like getting this sort of like this this bleed over in terms of the values. So I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see um, you know an, an increased push to to uh, to have guns among among the Canadian right um, and to yeah to to just be be able to to wield them in the same ways that the American right does because obviously it's the American right likes that and it's working out pretty well for them. So yeah, it's something for us to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, and especially in Canada, it's uh, almost exclusively the right. You'll see um, CFRC, which I believe is the coalition for firearm, some the Canadian coalition for firearms or something. I can't remember exactly that. And then the NFA, uh, and they basically completely dominate uh, the discourse. And on the other side, you'll see, um, organizations that are fully justified. Like one of them is, uh, I believe it's, uh, it was founded after the Polytechnique shootings in 1989 and they're for complete total gun control. And I obviously sympathize more with them and they'd have some great points, but you know, we're never going to get rid of guns in, in Canada. I, I go in my video, there was, um, like a 1970s piece of gun control, um, that promised new protections and, you know, we're going to deny more people who apply if they're, they're unfit. And it basically didn't, it changed it by like 0.01% of how many applications were denied. Um, a buyback program is, is if it's voluntary, it'll be good. But if it's a mandatory one, you're going to get a lot more pushback and the cops, honestly, at that point, they're just not going to bother. They're not going to enforce it. Um, so I, I, I think Canada is broadly in a better spot than America is, uh, gun wise. Um, I would recommend, um, following R. Blake Brown. He's the person who wrote, um, uh, uh, history of Canada's gun control. Uh, that's what it based a lot of my video off of. And just, if you can find leftists who talk about guns in a way that is nuanced, it's kind of hard in Canada, um, but if I find any, I'll absolutely let people know. But uh, one I would absolutely recommend is Tactical Girlfriend. Um, she is a trans woman who knows more about guns than I know about anything, and her wow. videos are amazing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I think that's most of what I had to say. Um, yeah, well, we can always... Um you know, keep talking on, uh, on Twitter and stuff when we, when we post this, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for coming on to, to talk about the Canadian context here. And, um, you know, as always, I want to remind my fellow Canadians that just because things are a little bit better here, doesn't mean they can't get much, 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 much worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and doesn't mean that things aren't still, um, pretty bad. Uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, so Stay informed, stay safe, um, and follow follow Scott on social media. He's Pinko Punko on uh, YouTube and on TikTok, and um, I think on on Twitter as well. That's just uh, like, I, that my handle's at you caught Scott. I always like flick, right, yeah. flick between the two, but yeah, if you search Pinko Punko, you'll probably find me. Yeah, and we'll put uh, we'll put that stuff uh, and a link to to your video. We'll put it in the show description. So awesome! Thank, thank you, so you much. for having me. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Cheers. Big thanks to Scott Martin for coming on the show. Check out his work as Pinko Punko on TikTok and YouTube. Bread and Poppies is produced by my fantastic drug policy friend and comrade, Marcel Rambo. The music was created by the artist Pusher. You can find him on Spotify and also TikTok, where he makes really fun anti-capitalist songs. The microphone I'm using was given to me by Mark Edwards of Ultraviolet Podcast. Great show. 
And thank you so much to you all for listening and for helping with comments and engagement on social media. I know that most people don't have the means to support many leftist creators, so sharing content is genuinely helpful. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube as Hillary Agro, Hillary with one L. Thank you especially to my Patreon supporters who are a group of the most dynamite human beings ever to walk this planet. Be well, keep up the fight, rest, and take care of yourself and your comrades. Remember that you can't help others if you're burned out, so treat yourself the way you treat your loved ones, with care. I love you all. See you next time. Thank you.